8 billion people. That's what the UN announced this week. 8 billion people living on our planet. Can, can you imagine that? I, by the way, are a number of 4,712,615,202. I bet you didn't know your number. 8 billion people. So what does, what does that do to your understanding of ours as a personal God? How can, how can God keep track of 8 billion people? I, I think I probably know most of you who are watching this, and yet if I suddenly had to say all of your names, you, you know me, you know I'd flub that. Our other pastors would do better at that, but I'm not the only one who struggles with names in our world. 8 billion names. How, how could God do that? And then how many people have come before us? I mean, 16 billion, 24 billion? The thing is, it, it actually, I don't think, is a super hard thing for God to handle. To me, it's, it's kind of parallel how, to how we would understand or talk about eternity. We as human beings, you know, we can think of past and future. And so we're always trying to figure out, like, how did it all begin? And, and does it have an end? And if so, how will that be? And, and, and how can God be eternal? But the Bible very wisely reminds us that God's name is I am, a verb, the most common one in the present tense. God's just always in the moment. Now is eternal, right? And so God is in the now and God's most... Uh, pure self-expression is love, which is also usually a verb in the Bible and not a noun. And, and so acts of love are eternal. The now is eternal. Only we as human beings get hung up on past and present. God is invested in the now. I, I think the same is true with, uh, with a very personal God, whether God made two million or two billion of us. If you believe there's a God, then God's presence isn't very hard to comprehend. I think the greater challenge to us as people of faith is the awareness that we're, we're usually not particularly aware of the presence of God or we actively push it away. Or if we are aware of it, we are not always willing to, in a sense, um, conform ourselves to the path that Jesus wisely teaches us to walk on. Ours remains a very present and personal God. The challenge for all of us is to be aware of it and then live accordingly somehow. That gets us to today's gospel lesson. We've been in Luke all this year. We've talked many times about there are so many stories that are unique to Luke's particular gospel, including today's gospel lesson, not the crucifixion, of course, but this conversation that takes place on the cross. So here are, here are three men who are dying, and they're not in hospice care. Nobody's putting ice on their tongues. Uh, nobody's remembering with love the, the best memories of their lives. I mean, people are jeering at them. People are, are gambling at the foot of the cross and insulting them and, and sharing bitter wine with them as if that was somehow going to take away their pain. Uh, they are torturing them to death. It is a horrific scene. But in the middle of this horrific scene, like this like this regular conversation breaks out and it's so regular because it's so universal in a sense. In other words, one of the guys on the cross looks at Jesus and, and he doesn't apparently sense the divine. He just says, do something about it, Jesus. Make it better for me. And, and, and that's us, right? Um, to the extent that there's a God, we want God to do stuff for us. But, but it doesn't mean we're really actually aware of the divine. But, but the other guy is, is aware of it. And he, um, he, 
he admits to his own culpability in what's happening and he defends Jesus and then most of all he asks this, this intensely personal thing, which is I think all any of us ever wonder about, which is, will I be remembered or will I just be forgotten? And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and it's almost as if when he says that, he's saying, when, when you come into your, when your glory and kingdom and I'm, I'm rotten and held, Jesus, will you remember me? And, and Jesus' response to him is, is, as with so many of our prayers, you know, hundred times more than what he asked for. It's not just that I'll remember me, but that, that you won't be rotting in hell, that you'll be with me in paradise. The divine is love, right? And love is so very unconditional in our God. I think one of the challenges with religion a lot of times, and this is especially true at its extremes, is that people think it's kind of a zero or a hundred percent sort of thing. Like you're either a hundred percent all in and doing everything God says or, or you're a terrible person and you're just a zero percent. And, and that's not even close to true. I mean, our ability to be a hundred percent of what God expects, I mean, that's, that's not possible. Uh, to expect perfection of ourselves is, is wrong. And it's to deny the reality of, of sin, that we make mistakes. But, but just because you're not a hundred percent doesn't mean you're then a loser at zero percent. Maybe, maybe a helpful thing, as I was thinking about it, is, is just NBA basketball statistics. So um, if, you're, if you're a really good shooter, you shoot uh, successfully 90% of your free throws, 50% of your shots from the field, and 40% of your three-pointers. So basically, you're 90% on easy ones, 50% on the regular ones, 40% on the really tough ones. And by the way, the average NBA player shoots like 33% on the three-pointers. So it's like a third, a half, and 90%. And to me, that's a reasonable way to structure how we look at our own faith lives. That there are really tough moments uh, in life and really tough decisions. Um, if we can get to 40% on those, that's, that's pretty good. And, and then there's all the stuff of regular life. Maybe we're shooting 50% on those in terms of being faithful. Uh, to the path Jesus sets before us. And then there are the easy ones. I mean, somebody drops a wallet in front of us, and rather than rifle through it and take everything, we, we make sure it gets back to the, to the rightful owner. You know, stuff like that we should be over 90% on. And so 40, 50, 90%, maybe that makes some sense for how we recognize both the divine in our presence and then respond on the way Jesus has guided us toward. Speaking of being on the way. So this, this last summer, Barb and I journeyed to Europe to visit, first of all, our son David, who was over there. But, but uh, reason 1A was we were going over to see Hannah, who is his significant other. But we'd met Hannah before, so then reason 1AA was we were going to meet Hannah's family. And they're from Amsterdam, and so uh, we came in uh, south of there and you know, flights were canceled, all sorts of issues. But, you know, we were working our way uh, from the south, uh, north towards Amsterdam. And, and all along when we planned this trip, we were going to make a stop in northeast Belgium. And uh, uh, when we got to northeast Belgium, uh, all the locals immediately, you know, recognized us as Americans and said, oh, you're here so that you can visit the, the war cemeteries. And we'd always kind of hem and haw on that a little bit, and we would say, well, actually, we're really here to meet Hannah's family. And that's kind of how we avoided answering it, because honestly, we weren't there to visit the war cemeteries. 
you know why we went to Northeast Belgium? Because my wife, Barb, who is uh, such a serious and awesome human being, the, the one thing she wanted to do on this trip, other than see Hannah's family, was what do you think? Visit a brewery in Watu, Belgium, the, the St. Bernardus Brewery, because their beer is imported to the U.S. and they have one quadruple that's like drinking your dessert. It's amazing. And she wanted to see this brewery. That's why we were in Northeast Belgium. So we accomplished that little part of the trip. And then now on your screen, you can see another part of what we did. We did visit some of those cemeteries. Um, and they all kind of looked like the one you see on your screen right now, which is in Ypres, Belgium, which is the far northeast, uh, the Great War Cemetery. So a cemetery to uh, those who fought in World War I. As the, as the slides change for you, you'll, you'll see that this is not far from Flanders Field. That was a poem written in 1915 by a Canadian army surgeon um, who was mourning the loss of one of his comrades and wrote about these fields that were filled with graves and with flowering poppies. We were there at a time of the year where there weren't any poppies, but there were daisies and there were asters and there were geraniums. It was a beautifully maintained cemetery. But the interesting thing is um, all of the lives that are buried there, no one's alive anymore who would have known any of them. And yet people visit every day, including us. The day we visited was cloudy and still, and the city was quiet, and it was as if you could sense uh, the spirits represented in that place. But what was most striking was just the, the inscriptions on the, the various tombstones. Almost everyone had one. And just take a look at them as we progress through them by age. So here's a 42-year-old who served in the army. And the inscription there is, God is love, but someone or something to love, God lends us. A 34-year-old, peace, perfect peace. He died in 1917. If he had served a couple of years, um, we call it now post-traumatic stress disorder, but in World War I, they called it shell shock. Uh, soldiers talk and write about how they, they, would, they long to die rather than continuing to hear the noise of the shelling and of the war. Peace, perfect peace. A 23-year-old, imagine losing your only son in loving memory of our dear and only son. Rest in peace. Age 21, till the day break and the shadows at last flee away. War, sadly, is indiscriminate and very inclusive, so there weren't just crosses on all of these gravestones. There was a large number of stars of David, a 19-year-old, a daily thought, an everlasting sorrow. I can't imagine as a parent losing uh, a child in a war, but to still have the faith to say God is love, the most essential statement of our faith, Father, in thy gracious keeping, leave we now our loved ones sleeping for a 19-year-old. And then the youngest one we saw was this 17-year-old uh, killed early in the war. Um, you know, probably still so, so innocent at some level. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then a one that was seen frequently. So we have our tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington, Virginia. But there are thousands of tombs to the unknown. A soldier of the great ward, lore known unto God. But of all of those stones, this picture, this map was ma 
perhaps the saddest thing of all to see. Uh, if you're looking at it, the, the legend on the map would tell you that um, the, the entire war on the Western Front was fought between the green line and the red line on that map. That's, that's less than 70 miles. Uh, 70 miles fought over for four and a quarter years uh, uh, at the cost of millions of lives uh, killed and, and wounded. And the, and the thing about that is most of the war was fought within a couple miles of the black line that you're looking at. So 70 miles, that's from here to Fond du Lac. That's as if you have an entire war fighting over the northern Kettle Moraine. And, and five miles is what, here to maybe Freighter Hospital to our east or GE Healthcare to our west. Such a, a small space and, and so many lives fought over a couple of meters of mud at a time. Um, I wanted to share that just because uh, also in the news this week was that 100,000 soldiers on each side of the Ukrainian war have died or been wounded. Uh, 40,000 civilians have been killed, you know, millions displaced. Um, we started this war, at least here in worship, by saying pray every day for the war to end. Keep praying that prayer. I don't know how it will happen. And even, even me, there's always a tendency to start rooting for somebody to win, but, but uh, there oftentimes aren't winners to these wars. And in fact, you just end up fighting over a couple hundred yards over and over again. It seems to be getting that way there. And, and so we pray that somehow someone will allow these sides to talk and, and resolve it in a way that doesn't cost more and more lives. And, and that's true in our own country too. Coming into this last election, 9% of our, our country said that they expected political violence or even a civil war. We are a wonderful, great country with so much diversity of our people. Of course, we're going to disagree with each other. We have no reason whatsoever to ever even think of using violence to resolve those disputes. God gave us ideas and minds and mouths, but also ears to listen to each other. Um, be really steadfast in encouraging yourself and others to both speak and listen. This is how we continue to grow and advance. But we should come back to today's gospel lesson. So here's the, here's the last of the slides. Here's another anonymous person. Uh, no year of his death, no awareness of how old he would have been, but he's known unto God. And when you think about it, that's all of our tombstones, right? I, I mean, for a generation or two, people know us, but the farther out you go, no one is left who, who actually knows who you are. I think that's scary oftentimes to people. Um, but, but, but it shouldn't be, um, because, because you're known unto God. Uh, God remembers, God is personal, God is close. And, and the more important thing then as we live through our lives is, is how, how can we grow as followers along the way? We end our year now in Luke's gospel. It's always kind of ironic to me that, that I think the story the entire gospel leads to uh, the story on Easter evening isn't even in our lectionary. I mean, technically it is, but it's, it's appointed to be read on Easter evening, and there's no church that has an Easter evening service anymore, and so we never read it. And, and Sherry and Muriel will laugh because I talk about this particular story all the time, but it's the Emmaus Road story, and it's on Easter evening, and, and it's just the story of the life of faith because it's two people leaving Jerusalem in despair, um, not understanding resurrection or life. And then Jesus walks with them and they don't recognize him like we tend not to do in life. 
And, and then finally, at the end of their journey, he breaks bread with them, and that wakes them up, and they realize that their hearts had been burning all along, and that's all awesome metaphors for the life of faith. But the important thing about that story is not all that stuff, it's that once that they're, they're kind of aware of who he is and, and what life actually is about, they rush all the way back to Jerusalem to share good news, and, and the people there already know it, and so now they have people to celebrate with, and they have the spirit to actually have the strength to follow in his stead. And, and maybe shoot more than 90% for quite a while to come. That's all Luke is trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that it's okay if you don't get it most of your life. He's telling us that it's the simplest things, just breaking bread together, that bring alive the connection between us as human beings and our God. And, and that when even a little bit of that connection is made, then there is great energy uh, to live in Jesus' good and just and peaceful and loving ways and to share that good news with others. If Julius Caesar walked into the room today, think of all the history about him, but if he was dressed in our clothes nowadays, nobody would recognize him. Nobody would recognize anybody from history. And, and, and most of the people in history, we don't have all of that stuff written about. But lives that reflect the presence of God, lives that are aware of it in some of life's tough moments, in most of the regular ones, uh, really there when the easy ones come our way. Those are lives very well lived. And, and may you and I be remembered, maybe not for the details of our lives, but because of our confidence in our God, the one to whom all of us are known. You are, after all, known unto God.